you're just joining us today, we're, we're going through the road through Romans. We haven't been on this road for a while, actually. Um, we're back on the road. And we're up to chapter 8. If you want to turn into your Bibles to chapter 8, I strongly recommend you do it, even though I will have uh, the verses on the, on the board. Rather, I will have the verse on the board. And with that, I do make an apology, kind of. Um, yes, again, we're just going through one verse today, alright? But it's just something that I want to address that kind of, kind of warms us up for Romans chapter 9. And the reason is because there's a word in this verse. We're looking at verse 33 but um, today, but the title is just a question I like to ask questions, who are the elect of God? And I've purposefully used this picture that is a reference to a website. It's a, quite a popular website. It's gotquestions.org, I think it is. I always forget whether it's .com.org. If you have any questions about the Bible, I actually strongly recommend a website called biblequestions.com. Biblequestions.com. But the reason I use gotquestions.org because is when you look at this question and the answer, I, I actually think it's quite biased. It's, quite, it's like there's only one view of who the elect are. And I'll get into that a bit more later on because for now, I would like to read verse 33 and start off by... Um, addressing what this actual verse, a subject, is about. But just before I do that, just a reminder that this is the best chapter to study with someone if they believe that you can lose your salvation. If you know a Christian that believes that they can lose their salvation, do what you can to offer a private study just between you and them. This is about making disciples. And make the study starting at Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and going through to the end of the chapter. It's a marvelous, marvelous chapter that if you've just been through with us, journeying this road um, through chapter 8, I cannot see how someone, um, or I cannot see Paul, rather, believing that he could lose his salvation. And what they do, you probably know, is they look at all these different other verses, and more than likely they've read that verse, they've taken it out of context, and then they've just applied it to their already predetermined belief in what, um, um, I guess their soteriology belief, which is the, you know, the study of salvation. This is a question by Paul that I believe probably he's already been addressed to, particularly by um, probably some Jewish people back in the day. But we've just finished in our last one, 
um, of, of um, 32, of who can be against us. If God is for us, hey, who can actually defeat us? Who can actually beat us? Who can actually um, win over us? We know there's lots of people who can be actually against us in opposition, but who can be against us to the point where they can actually overcome us? That's what Paul is trying to say. And really there is absolutely no one because we have the Spirit of God living in us. No one can take us down. No one can take away our salvation, our victory. That's only found in Jesus Christ. But then he asks, in verse 33, who can bring an accusation? Who can bring an accusation? Or rather, who can bring a charge against you? Who can do that? Hopefully you know the answer is no one. All right. Because the answer is right there at the end of the verse, which we get into. God is the one who justifies. I've read this verse quite a number of times. And back in the day, so what, what's, that, what's, the, what's the connection there? Okay, no one can accuse us, but what's, what's it talking about God justifying us? And so the, the, when you look at this Greek where of bringing an accusation, laying a charge against you, it's actually kind of relating to the court of law. It's like a legal term where they can actually charge you, bring a charge against you, prosecute you, accuse you of doing wrong. Who can do that? Well, how many people do you know that try to do it? If you've been in the church for quite a while, you might have been, uh, particularly if you're a leader in a church, you might be, uh, you have some, had some exposure to that. But straight away, I find a number of people who can do this. A lot of people just refer to this guy, who, again, we call, it, call him a person, even though he's a spirit. This enemy of ours, who we call Satan, Lucifer, or whatever you want to call him, he's called the accuser in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. I heard a loud voice saying, this is John, again, um, seeing a vision. In heaven now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. So when you see this verse, when you read this verse, and you take it at face value, it's like, it's like Satan is bef- coming before God, what, day and night, and accusing us of wrongdoing. Like, he's up there, or wherever he is. That's my question. Where is he? Because we know Satan is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere. However, he is a spirit, so he can go pretty quickly around places. And we're told elsewhere that he is going around trying to devour us. 
like a roaring lion. He's seeking whom he may devour. He's trying to get us to give up in our walk with Christ, in our service for him. Remember, he can't, he knows, he knows he can't take away our salvation. But he's before God day and night. And I'm just, I've just heard different messages around this, different commentaries about, you know, if he's, is he in heaven day and night accusing us? Or is he before God in, in the sense that, you know, he's having this mysterious communication with God and say, God, what? Do you know what Tim did that last week? And you're still, you're still going to bless him? You're still going to glorify him? You're still going to, like, love him? Are you sure? Like, what are you talking about? Each and every one of us, the brethren, he accuses us. A part of me, I'd love to do more research on this. I didn't get time just this week to do it. But I want to get more into, you know, in a sense I just think um, he does it, again, he gets in our mind. And we, and we, and uh, this is a great, this is a, a really important verse for those who are really discouraged and, and then they end up doubting. So what usually, someone usually happens, and Peter talks about that in, in his books, that when we get into an, a season of our life where we might, we might actually disobey God, we might actually get into a season of rebellion, we just block out that voice of his, and if you do that, what happens is that doubts come. Doubts of, oh, I'm really struggling with this sin. And if I'm struggling with this sin, am I really saved? Peter talks about this. He says, be obedient in all these areas of your life so that your calling can be true, is true. So that you know that your calling is true, is firm. Because that's what happens to us. We start doubting. And is the devil accusing us, ourselves? Say, you're, you're, you're a good for nothing Christian. What's the point of you? You're struggling with that sin. Oh, what's, what, what, what worth are you gonna? What worth are you? God, God doesn't think highly of you. Which brings us to some other people. I don't think the devil is the only one that accuses us of. Because I was saying earlier that if you have been exposed to the church world for any length of time, you may have, you may have experience this. Or a church that reflects that kind of judgment where they see someone come through the doors and maybe they do have some tattoos or they do smell or they do, they don't look like they should be here. And we just judge and say, oh, what have you done with your life? What are you doing? And our whole focus is taken away from what we're supposed to do in, in, in loving one another. 
what our Sunday school children are talking about, loving enemies even, but I just don't want to be that church. But how many churches are there? How many, how many people do you know where you, you're just judging someone because of their behavior? Whereas what we're supposed to do, if we are not tempted ourselves, is to reprove them, to encourage them to get back on the right track. But who confesses in this room that usually we don't do that? We usually just say, oh, yeah, what, a, what an idiot. Just wasting away their life. Doing, living in sin. Oh, goodness. Stay away from that person. We can't, we can't walk with the counsel of the ungodly. But then... Then, how many times do we accuse ourselves? I think sometimes we are our own worst enemies, where our mind gets in the way of our heart. And it could be because maybe you've been brought up to believe that you are good for nothing. And your mind is still being renewed to the place where you actually have to firmly believe that, no, you are not good for nothing, according to God. You are actually someone, something. Or as someone else has said, you are something. And the reason they do that is because of our thumbprints. We are each unique. No one has the same thumbprint, science tells us. What? Is that just by accident? Or did God actually orchestrate that? Does God actually know who you are? Does God actually love you? So why is it where sometimes we get to the point where oh, I'm struggling with, I can't even forgive myself. I'm having a hard time forgiving myself. Why do we do that? God's forgiven us. Why can't we forgive ourselves? So when we are accused, we need to come back to th some theology. We had to, we had to come back to some truth, which we covered in, oh, let me think now. Chapter 6, maybe? Starting in chapter 5? I think it's mentioned, where we're talking about God's justification. So just a reminder for those what justification actually means. If you haven't joined us or if this word is actually new to you, what does it actually mean that God justifies you? Well, again, just think of a courtroom where you have been charged with a, a, a crime. And the crime is, we could just say sin, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So everyone's guilty, correct? Romans 3.23. But God, God, through, because of Jesus Christ, or because of your faith in Jesus Christ, what he's done 
is he has legally, I could say legally, because it is, a, again, a legal term, he has legally allowed you to be declared not guilty. You are not guilty for that sin. And you are treated, not just declared, you are treated like you are not guilty. We're let off the hook. Yeah, what? That's too good to be true, is it? Yes, <laughs> but it is true. It is really good. And that's what's so magnificent and tremendous and just beautiful about grace. We don't deserve any of it, and it's nothing that we can bring to the table. It's all from what Jesus has done on the cross. So, in other words, to speak some Christianese on what this um, picture has demonstrated, Christ's righteousness has been credited to us. It's not any of our righteousness. He has made us righteous because His righteousness has been credited, deposited to us. And our guilt was credited to Jesus on the cross. We have been justified. Because we are declared not guilty for the rest of our lives, wow, that's something to praise God for. We can't be accused. We can't be accused of not being good enough for God. All right, so let's get into this word, elect. That is the first time that Paul mentions it in the book of Romans. And you probably already know that the elect, or who's this talking about, is God's children, believers. We're given another name, God's elect. And if you're familiar with your you're English, elect. Well, we've just had an election. What do we do? We chose a, a leader for this country, or leaders, I should say. So elect means to choose. So when you go to um, somewhere like got, um, gotquestions.org, and you're, you're wondering... Because the, the, the doctrine that this is addressing is the doctrine of election. And it's just interesting that when you go to these websites, apparently, apparently, there is no debate on God choosing you for salvation. Apparently, the debate is how he goes about doing it. But I want to address what I interpret the doctrine of election to be as someone who actually doesn't believe that God chose me or God chose you to be saved even before we were born. Because that's the main, um, the main uh, as I said, apparent agreedness that that we, we come to is that 
before the foundation of the world, before anything was created, God chose me, for instance, but as far as I know, he didn't choose my brother because I don't believe my brother's saved. I have a problem with that because it distorts the character of God in my eyes. Now, this is something, by the way, I'll I'll say this again. This is something that we can all happily, okay, happily agree to disagree. Because this is a doctrine or a teaching, okay, rather, that it's non-essential to agree on. Because yes, well, yes, it does relate to our salvation, but whatever you believe is we all believe that there's only one name that you can be saved under, and that is the name Jesus Christ. That is something that we have to agree on. We can't happily agree to disagree on us being saved by a belief in Buddha or, or Muhammad or whatever, Okay? Only Jesus Christ. So I'll say that again. So you might be wondering then, so what then is, what do you think the doctrine of election is? Um, As I mentioned earlier, this is warming us up for Romans chapter 9 because I was contemplating, well... Should I or shouldn't I? Should I wait till Romans chapter 9 to discuss this? But I thought, hey, I see the word elect. I've wondered myself, what does that elect mean? Because this is not the only place that's mentioned. In the other places in the New Testament, um, God's elect is mentioned. But firstly, before I do that, I'll say, this is, I'll just mention, this is why I believe God does not elect those for salvation. In other words, I don't believe... Um, uh, that God, even before the, the time began, that he chose you uh, but not them, or chose you but not, not him, but someone you know, okay? Not a family member that you might know is it's unsaved at the moment. And I'm just going to go to Scripture, right? Of course. I wouldn't have it any other way. So the, f- the first one is, is plainly Acts chapter 10, um, verses 34 to 35. Right, you know this is the story of Cornelius, and, um, and verse 34 starts off by saying, Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. God is impartial. But accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You could say just say that, for those who trust Jesus Christ. Okay, without getting into um, any nitty-gritty stuff with that verse. We don't have time for it. To me, God is playing favourites. If he has chosen him, me, but not my brother. He's being impartial. To me, it's simple as that. It's favouritism. God is choosing me over him. Secondly, 1 Timothy 2, 1-4. I urge then, first of all, 
Our petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, someone who believes that God chose people before the foundation of the world would say, no, God doesn't want all people to be saved. He wants people from all nations to be saved. And they refer back to those previous verses about kings and those in authority, putting people into categories. But I personally, my opinion is, it's a hermeneutical mistake. It's, it's an interpretation that's putting it, being brought out of thin air. That's not what I'm reading, particularly as you read further down in verse 6. Notice what it says in verse 6 if you have your Bibles open. That's that um, the ransom is for all. The Jesus is for all. And thirdly, this is, um, if, I, if, I, if I could just give you three reasons, okay? Uh, this is found in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. They have been clearly seen. So we look at creation, his invisible qualities can be clearly seen. You don't have to be a Christian to see that God exists. Right? Because we know there are non-believers that believe God exists. That God's there. Only a fool would say, there is no God. Now, why is that important? Well, that makes us without excuse. That makes people without an excuse on Judgment Day. If God did not choose me to be saved, I'm sorry, I would have the best excuse in the whole world. God didn't choose me. The responsibility is not on me. Of course, someone who believes that, who believes you are chosen, they can't explain it. They usually just say, well, our minds are not big enough to reconcile the whosoever wills with God's sovereign decree that you will be saved. Now that said, I think the dividing issue between these two kinds of people are the definition of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. A person who most likely believes that God chose you before the foundation of the world would define God's sovereignty as God controlling absolutely everything in this world. On the other hand, someone over here would define God's sovereignty as God being in control of absolutely everything that happens in this world. And I relate that to my family or to my son, for instance. I'm in control of my son most of the time. 
but I don't make him do things. I give him choices. So what then? If you're saying, Tim, God didn't choose me before the foundation of the world, what in the world does the elect mean? Because, hey, he chose. He chose someone, something. So what did he choose? I think the best way to illustrate this, to explain this, is found in Matthew chapter 22, verses four, uh, 1 to 14. And I encourage you, if, if this is still baffling to you, um, and if it's baffling to you now, well, I suggest you do your homework before we get to Romans chapter 9. Because Romans chapter 9, and by the way, I just want to take this time to say how impressed and how grateful I am for this church, particularly those who have come with us the whole way up to this point in Romans. Because, um, I don't know, a lot of preachers say that their church probably can't handle it. They probably don't want to handle it because it's so deep. It's so meaty. But I'm one that just feels compelled to just go verse by verse and just encourage you to really get to know your Bible. Really study it. Really get to know the love of God. And I think the best way to do that is to go verse by verse. Even though sometimes it does take longer. But my encouragement is to do some homework and study this parable. Study this parable. I'm not going to have it up on the screen, sorry. Matthew chapter 22. As you study and read this parable, I'll do it once this morning because I have five minutes left. Ask these four questions. Or not these four questions, rather. See these four kinds of people that God chooses. God chooses. See if you can see it in the parable and help us come to the conclusion of why we are called the elect. Now, first of all, he says in verse 2, Matthew, the kingdom of heaven, or Jesus is Jesus because it's, 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 it's red writing in my, in my Bible, and Jesus is saying this parable. Obviously, Matthew's just reiterating it. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. For his son, notice. Okay, he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden or invited to the wedding, and they would not come. So, God has already chosen two kinds of people. First of all, he has um, chosen those who are invited to his sons. We could say his chosen people, who we know is the nation of Israel. That was the first invitation. Now, he also um, has chosen someone already in these first few verses, and that is he sent forth his servants or his messengers. So he chose certain servants, certain messengers to do that. We know that. We know them to be um, all sorts of people. God chose, for instance, you know, all, the, all those prophets that we read about in the Old Testament. Was any of it merited? No. 
But he needs messengers. He needs servants, right? So he chose them. Um, now we, we see what happens, right? Um, they would not come, in verse, the end of verse 3 says. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are invited, behold, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fatlings are killed. All things are ready, come unto the marriage. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And get this, verse 6, the remnant took his servants, so the people who were invited took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. When the king heard thereof, he was wroth, he was mad, he was angry, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then said he to his servants, notice what he chooses next, the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden or invited were not worthy. Well, they didn't even want to come. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, invite them, bid them to the marriage, to the feast, to the banquet. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. So God chose, God chose the invitations to go out, not just to his people, but to anyone, even if they were bad, even if they were good. God chose the recipients of the invitation. That it's not just excluded or exclusive to his people, the Jews, but he chose the invitation to be given out to the Gentiles. Now, verse 11, when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. Very interesting, all right? And he says unto him, friend, you know, how did you get in here not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then king said to king, the, the servants, bind him a hand and foot, take him away. He cast away into outer darkness, gnashing of teeth, which we know as hell. So what did not this person who was invited, what did he not have to get into the actual wedding or to participate? Which I'll just metaphorically say, we could say the gates of heaven. What stopped him from getting in? It was his garment, right? So metaphorically or allegorically speaking, what garment do we have on that allows us to get into heaven? We are clothed with what? We are clothed with Christ's righteousness. Look up that term. We're clothed with Christ's righteousness. So in order to participate in the wedding banquet, we have to be clothed with Christ's righteousness. So therefore, God chooses only those who are clothed with Christ's righteousness to participate in the wedding. No, it's not just for everyone. It's only those who are clothed in Christ's righteousness. That's what he chose. And now I want you to write down Ephesians chapter 1. Okay? Ephesians chapter 1. And this week, please study that 
and ask yourself, when it says God chose us before the foundation of the world, did he choose us individually or did he choose those who are in Christ to become the adoption of God's children? It's just like what we were looking at in verse 28. It's only those who are clothed in Christ's righteousness are predestined to be glorified. It doesn't say, I know people interpret it, it doesn't say God predestined me to be called It's just those he predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ, to become adopted as his children. So in a sense, we are chosen in two senses. We're chosen in the sense that, hey, I'm a Gentile, and I've been invited, and I'm also chosen because I've accepted the invitation, the gift of Christ. I'm chosen to partake in his glory. I've been chosen to become adopted, to be conformed into the image of his son when we leave this earth. Whether that's through the rapture or whether it's when I die, who knows? So there is a choosing, but my interpretation of that choosing. But you might say, but what about, what about that verse? What about this verse? And yeah, wow. This subject is very broad, and that's why I invite you, Wednesday night, we're going to be going through the verses that says, but what about this? What about that? So if you do want to learn more about this, I invite you here, Wednesday night, 6.30 p.m. We're going to be talking about those verses that, you know, can be interpreted either way, easily interpreted, okay? But um, to me... When I interpret a verse, I've got to make sure it doesn't contradict any other verses in the Bible. And more than likely, when we've read this verse, when we say, oh, is that what it means? Well, more than likely, and this is the case, I keep on, I keep, I keep on learning. I keep on, as I study longer and longer, say, so, oh, I've never thought about it being interpreted that way. And that makes sense when you line that up with other scriptures. Ah, choose this day whom you will serve. Oh, so I have a choice to make. God doesn't make the choice for me. I've got to make the choice. But what about, finally, to end, and I'm, no, I'm not going to promise. I was going to promise. I won't, I won't promise just in case something happens and just in case I get carried away. I'm going to do my best to finish chapter 8 next week. Okay, because it's just finishing off the, the point that there's still no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus, regardless of who it is that is against us. So, if God has justified you, this is the true application from today's, from today's message. No man, or I'll say devil, I said with all the, little, all the other little devils, you know, I remember the third of them decided to rebel and follow the big, the big devil. 
If God has justified you, no one can ever condemn you. And that's why we are reminded that nothing, absolutely nothing, not, I'm saying not even yourself can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing created. And we know God won't do it. <laughs> do you need to hear that this morning? Has something happened to you this week where you become, your doubts arise, fear is assailed. Oh, I should have chosen that song. Leaning on the everlasting arms. We need to lean on the everlasting arms. That's, that's what we need to take every day with you. God has justified us. And I reckon the more mature that you get in your faith, the more you will just, just be in awe of God's love because, you know, it's just, you just get a, 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 a what is it, a deeper, a broader, a wider, a, a, I think the, a longer, a, a, just a, a greater understanding of God's love for us as we grow. It's so sad to see all these Christians just remaining as babies and, and they just continue, maybe even their life, of just sin and despair. They're not going to be happy. They're going to be miserable. Maybe that's why half the Christians in this world are miserable. Because they're still down here, immature babes. Not willing for their mind to be renewed. Well, we'll do that next week, shall we? For now, let's pray. Ah, Lord God, just thank you for your heart. I think I thanked you last time for our eternal security. <laughs> Just knowing that your love for us never changes, that your forgiveness of our sins is not progressive. It's actually a once-for-all forgiveness with no conditions, Lord. Even when we try to put conditions on it ourselves, we thank you that your truth never changes. might change in our minds, Lord, but uh, we know that doesn't affect you. So we just want to just take these truths out of today's message and ask that you'll just help us, help them firm, firmly be in our hearts and minds as we... Go outside these doors. As we enter in what is reality, a mission field where we are called, we are invited to participate in your purposes here on earth, in making disciples, in proclaiming your love to the, the ones who are lost, in edifying the body of Christ. Whatever it may be that you want us to do today, Lord, and tomorrow, and this week. We pray that you would just continually have that firm. Continually prick out our hearts and our minds where we've been reminded to be vigilant of what is of eternal significance. We want to give you praise. We want to give you all the glory because we know what a wonderful and loving God you are. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.